you guys so much. Um, I was trying to give them uh, a little bit of a break by not having them share the very first week that they were they were here, and so uh, we, we thought it would be good this week. And uh, yeah, I uh, just appreciate their uh, passion and uh, intentionality um, and drive to move forward in ministry. That's always a challenge to me uh, when I see folks who are like that, and uh, I think it's a good uh, reminder for us here in the States. We tend to um, just sort of exist in our Christianity and show up on Sundays and go to our jobs and do our thing. Uh, and it's a, a, a kind of a shock to the system sometimes to, to hear from people who are just totally and completely driven by a desire to see the, the gospel get out. Um, and so that's a good thing to, to hear and to listen to and a good reminder for us. Um, so thank you guys for sharing and challenging us this morning, and uh, I hope this, this time with us over the next few months will be relaxing for them and encouraging for them, and, uh, and you as a body are, are a big part of that. So, uh, so be intentional in how you reach out to them and engage with them over the next couple months. Uh, well, this morning, um, we are going to move away from the book of Exodus uh, just for a few minutes. I know you're nervous. You're going, oh my goodness, he's going to preach now? And you know, it's uh, almost 10 o'clock, but I just want to share a little bit with you this morning, um, since it is Mother's Day, uh, regarding some uh, intentionality with how we parent and then with discipleship within the local church. So you can grab your Bibles and open them up to Exodus 10. And if you want to follow along and flip through the scriptures, we're going to look at a number of passages this morning uh, as, we, as we talk about intentional generational discipleship. Uh, around our house, we think that Calvin and Hobbes, the comic strip, is the greatest comic strip that has ever been invented. And we think that it is probably one of the greatest pieces of artwork of the 20th century. It's phenomenal. My kids read Calvin and Hobbes. I read it as a kid and have uh, passed on a love for it to my, my children. And there is one strip of Calvin and Hobbes, a daily strip, that my kids think is hilarious and it's a little bit concerning to me that they think that this is so funny. And I want to show it to you and walk you through it. So Calvin and Hobbes are there on the floor playing, and he says, when you're a kid, you don't have much variety of experience. You live with your parents, and that's all you know. You grow up thinking whatever they do is normal. And then his dad, I love the look of joy on his face, comes rolling in and says, ah, what a day. Up at 6 a.m., a 10-mile run in the sleet, and now a big bowl of plain oatmeal. How I love the crazy hedonism of weekends. And then Calvin, well, maybe normal is too strong a word. And I love Hobbes here. I think we'd know normal if we saw it. Right? <laughs> and the fact that my kids think that's funny is a little concerning to me. I probably am, not that I'm up at 6 a.m. out in the sleet running, but I'm probably the weird dad who thinks things are fun that they would find horrifying. But this, this strip is so funny because it really does connect us to uh, a reality um, that is, is important, um, and, it, and it's also a hilarious reality at times, right? I mean, parents have a massive influence, an underestimated influence. I mean, we think we know how, how important our influence is for good and bad on our kids, but I think we underestimate just how significant our influence is on shaping children in good ways, in bad ways, and in weird ways, as this comic illustrates and communicates. I mean, you and I, we grow up 
We have grown up thinking the way our parents think. We take from them our loves, our affections, our view of things. All of that is formed by our parents and by what they do. And we really grow up thinking to a large part that what they do is normal. This is the way life works. I mean, this is this is a sobering reality, and it's also an amazing gift that the Lord gives to parents and to children. One 19th century pastor named J.C. Ryle, I'm sure you've heard of him before, but he has an entire little booklet on the duties of parents for their, with their children. And he said this, and I thought this was so helpful regarding this influence. We are made what we are by training. Our character takes the form of that mold into which our first years are cast. We depend in a vast measure on those who bring us up. We get from them a color, a taste, a bias which clings to us more or less all our lives. We catch the language of our nurses and mothers and learn to speak it almost insensibly and unquestionably we catch something of their manners, ways, and mind at the same time. Time only will show, I suspect, how much we all owe to the early impressions and how many things in us may be traced up to seeds sown in the days of our very infancy by those who are about us. And all this is one of God's merciful arrangements. He gives your children a mind that will receive impressions like moist clay. He gives them a disposition at the starting point of life to believe what you tell them and to take for granted what you advise them, and to trust your word rather than a stranger's. He gives you, in short, a golden opportunity of doing them good. Now, I understand that this opportunity can be used and abused by parents in many ways. But as we think about this, it is a golden opportunity to influence children. And so it's Mother's Day today, and I want to just briefly celebrate this this influence that parents have on their children, and I want to show you in Scripture the importance of this intergenerational discipleship. And we're going to move from Israel and what we saw last week through Israel's history and then ultimately to the New Testament. And I want to show you, interestingly enough, the major focus in the Old Testament is on parents passing this on to their children and that, in, that is still a major emphasis in the New Testament, but in the New Testament, this sort of expands out beyond the family. And now you have the local church, and there's intergenerational discipleship within the local church, and you have women passing on to other women what they've learned, and you have men passing on to other men what they've learned, and it becomes, the, the, the focal point of discipleship becomes the local church and the family within the local church. And so it's an expansion out of that, and I think you'll see that as we move through. And so last week we saw in Exodus chapter 10, and I think I have this, I don't have it there, but if you're, if you're in Exodus, I want you to remind you of what we saw last week. This is going to be our starting point. I thought it would be good to expand on this, but in Exodus 10 verses 1 and 2, God performs these 10 signs in Egypt and tells Moses why he's going to do these 10 signs. Let me remind you of this. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. 
And so we talked a little bit, just briefly last time, about how Moses was to teach his children, his sons, and their grandsons. And the implication of this was that this was to continue on throughout the generations. And they were to talk about the character of God. They were to talk about the deeds of God, his actions that put his character on display. And I want to show you how this developed in good and bad ways in the history of Israel, really briefly. But here's kind of the summary of what we're saying this morning. Discipleship of the next generation takes place by the proclamation of the deeds and character of God. It's always focused on that, the deeds of God, his actions in redeeming Israel, and then his character. He says here, so that you may know, and so that your sons and grandsons may know who I am. So we begin here in Exodus 10, but then let's move forward to just a couple of chapters later in Exodus 13, where God institutes the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, why must Israel continue to celebrate this feast? I mean, is this just a bare ritual that they're supposed to do year in and year out? No. There's a specific purpose for why they're going to have this Feast of Unleavened Bread every single year. Exodus 13, it's on the screen if you're not turned there, but you're welcome to follow along in your Bible. Here's why. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute or this feast at its appointed time from year to year. I mean, the whole point here is this is a matter of instruction to children year in and year out so that they can remember and they can know what the Lord did and who he is. He continues on in Exodus 13, verse 14. And when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. And so they were to continue to talk about this and teach their children, and it was to be passed from generation to generation, not just one generation after Sinai, to continue on. And of course, Israel leaves through the Passover, and they head out into the wilderness. God delivers them through the Red Sea, and they come to Mount Sinai. They encounter God through Moses at Mount Sinai. They receive the covenant. God makes them into a people for his name and his glory. He gives them the law and instructs them in the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers how they're supposed to live. Of course, then they leave Sinai. If you're tracking along in Israel's history, they leave the mountain there, having the law been given to them, and they go out into the wilderness and make it to the edge of the promised land. And then that generation who came out of Egypt decides they don't trust the Lord enough to go into the promised land. They don't think he's going to protect them. And so God punishes them by making them wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And he tells them that every single one of that generation will die in the wilderness and it will be their children who will enter into the promised land. And so after 40 years, sure enough, all of that generation have passed away. And once again, the people come up to the edge of the promised land. And this time, when they reach the edge of the promised land, Moses gives them an entire series of lessons or sermons that are to help them when they go into the promised land. 
And we have those lessons and sermons recorded in the book of Deuteronomy. It's the second giving of the law, and it was given to this second generation to prepare them to go in. And over and over again, in this second giving of the law to the second generation, Moses tells them, you have got to teach your children. When you go into the promised land, you better make sure that you instruct your kids. Deuteronomy 4, only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. How on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Oreb, the Lord said to me, gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. Danny read all of Deuteronomy 6 this morning, but just want to draw your attention to a couple things here. Deuteronomy 6, Moses says again, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. The point is all of the interactions, this should be so normal for you to talk of God's character and his deeds that it's happening all the time. It's not just family devotions for 10 minutes at night, although that's great if you can do that. It's a constant topic of conversation and application in your daily life. He continues on in Deuteronomy 6. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. So this was so important for them as they went into the promised land to continue to talk and to remember, talk about and to remember the character and the deeds of God. Now Moses passes away at the end of Deuteronomy. They enter into the promised land. The book of Joshua recounts all of that to us, how they conquer the people and how they divide up the land to the different tribes. And then you reach the end of the book of Joshua and the Lord has been faithful to his promises. And then you move over into the early chapters of the book of Judges and Joshua, as is going to happen, passes away and we get these chilling words at the beginning of the book of Judges. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land, and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. They buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance at timnath Harris in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Why did they not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel? Apparently, the generation that saw it didn't talk about it and didn't communicate it to them. And so they didn't know. If you've ever read the book of Judges, you know how horrific it is 
I mean, the whole book recounts how Israel just slowly descends into becoming a pagan nation. And by the end of that book, you've got these stories that are describing Israel in the same way that they describe Sodom and Gomorrah. It's nuts what happens to them. And this passage in Judges 2 sets up the entire book in this way. They didn't talk about the Lord. They didn't remember his character. They didn't remember his deeds. And so they ended up becoming like a pagan nation and a pagan people. Now I want to show you one more Old Testament passage, and then we're going to jump to the New Testament. Psalm 78. Psalm 78. If you want to turn there, that's fine. I'll put it on the screen. But you have to understand that this psalm comes in the third book of the Psalter. The Psalter is divided up into five books. This psalm comes right in the middle of the third book of the Psalter. And without getting into too much explanation, we can talk about this some other time. The division of the Psalter is intentional because it tracks with the history of Israel. The Davidic Psalms are early, and then you get into the Messianic, a lot of the Messianic Psalms later on. But this section, the third book of the Psalter, is generally written and takes place and is aimed at the time in Israel's history after David, when you have the divided kingdom and before the exile. All right, so post-David, through Solomon, things start to go awry, and then you've got the divided kingdom, and things are completely a mess. And then at the end, in, in Psalm 89, you've got the exile being described. And so the people in this time are increasingly wicked, and the leadership is going astray. And throughout this section, we have these exhortations for Israel to remember what God has done and talk about it to the coming generations. Look at this. Psalm 78, verses 1 to 4. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. And the psalmist is exhorting them saying, look, you've got to do this. We know these things. They're in the scriptures. They're written down and we've got to tell them to the coming generation. Sorry, this is a little small. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. And so they, he's exhorting them. They've got to continue this practice. They've got to initiate this practice in many ways and talk about the character and the deeds of God and pass them on generation to generation. Now, obviously, the people go into exile and come back from exile and are dwelling in the land again and are awaiting the Messiah who comes. And amazingly enough, after he comes and we turn to the New Testament, we find, again, a continued emphasis on parents and grandparents training their children. First Timothy or 2 Timothy 1.5, Paul speaking to Timothy, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. 2 Timothy 3, but as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed 
knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. And then he goes on to describe the impact of those writings. Ephesians 6, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So the the actions that you do in disciplining them, the structure of your life, and then the words that you communicate to them verbally regarding the character and deeds of God all have to be reflective of the Lord. And so it's clear in the New Testament that parents are still responsible and are of primary influence in the lives of their children. But I think in the New Testament, you also find this expansion out where the message is passed from one generation to the next through the local church. Parents are not the only influence in their kids' lives anymore. They're primary, but that doesn't mean only. And so now you have this glorious family of the local church who are responsible to speak of God's word to one another and from one generation to the next. Titus 2, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. And he continues on. There are other passages in the New Testament that talk about this passing on of the faith, the speaking of the faith from one generation to the another. And so all of this in the New Testament means, I think, that the family is still a primary place of influence But now we all together in the local church have the responsibility to see the word of God and the proclamation of his character and deeds passed on from one generation to the next. It's not just the parents anymore. It's not honoring to the Lord to only think about my time period in my generation. We have to be thinking about those who will come after us. We have to think about future generations and how we will disciple them and who will be leading this church in accomplishing the mission 50, 60, 75 years from now because not many of us will be here in 75 years. But who will be? What will they be doing? And will they be faithful to proclaim for the next generation the character and the deeds of God? And so whether you're a parent this morning or not, If you are, if you're a parent or a grandparent, you have a glorious opportunity with your children and your grandchildren. But if you're not a parent this morning, you have the same glorious opportunity in the local church. You have the responsibility to communicate the deeds and the character of God to the next generation. And that happens in all sorts of ways, in all sorts of opportunities within the local church to proclaim God's deeds and to proclaim his character and to train the next generation so that they will know him and so that they will love him. And so consider that this morning. Mothers, consider that as you think about your responsibility and the opportunity that you have. And then if you're not a mother this morning, 
Consider that opportunity, too, for you as you think about the next generation and discipling them in the faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to hear from the Pazninos about what is happening in Ecuador. We pray for them that they would have a wonderful time in, in Michigan and that they would also be encouraged and uh, built up in the faith so that they are sent back to continue the work there. We also pray for our church body as we continue the work here. We pray that you would give us a vision for discipleship of the next generation, help those who are parents to be intentional and purposeful in talking about your actions, the redemption that you have brought to us, and the love and the righteousness and the justice of your character and proclaiming who you are from one generation to the next. We thank you for our time together this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.